This is the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Each episode, we help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word. Invest your heart and personal life into your study and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hey, welcome to this month's episode. Believe it or not, we are entering summer. It's June, and here we are to study this month. For us, we will be finishing out this month's study in the Gospels. And for you listeners out there, this month will be the last of the Gospels. Um, I can hardly believe that we've made it this far in our study already, it feels like. But maybe it's just because we've only done six episodes, don't you think? I think so. <laughs> Without doing weekly episodes, it really changes well, things up. Fast, yeah. So I was thinking, Zach, maybe we should throw it back to our really bad intros that we had like four years ago in our podcast where we introduce each other with really weird things oh oh so you want i, I think i said some kind of like compliments about you like yeah my, you did I always had a different adjective to describe yeah, my i life. am so sorry if you are going back to listen to those episodes man you know i will say and maybe zach what do you think about this that one of the hardest things about that has been for us for recording an episode is like, what do we do for the intro? How do we get into this? And then you think you have something good. And then four years later, you're kind of like embarrassed by it. Yeah. yeah. So we're not going to do any of that um, <laughs> other than to say thank you for listening today. I think that this study for us has been, and I don't know whether to say exciting or interesting or fun, but it's the end of the Gospels. It's a story that we hold dear to our hearts for obvious reasons as we end the Gospels and we end learning about Jesus's earthly ministry. Um, But that's what we'll be doing this month. For you, it's for us, it's this one episode. For you listeners, it will be this next month of your Come Follow Me study. Yeah. Well, I thought, you know, we talked a lot about this. Um, What we noticed as we studied the end of the Gospels And one of the things that we both kind of picked up on is how many stories there were of people struggling with their faith, which is maybe a bit counterintuitive because these are the stories of the resurrection and the glorified Savior. And the people in these stories are Jesus's main disciples. That's why they're in these stories, right? But they struggled. They had doubts and fears and felt alone. Uh, Just as we were getting ready, I remembered this question that Alma in the Book of Mormon asks in Alma chapter 5. He's giving this long sermon, and in that sermon, he peppers it with questions that can serve as kind of a self-reflection on faith. Questions like, have you received his image in your countenance? Have you experienced this mighty change in your heart? Can you look up to God at that day with a pure heart and clean hands? Questions like that. But one of them that came to mind is uh, kind of towards the ends of those questions, he says this, this is Alma 5.26. And now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, if you have experienced a change of heart, and if you have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can you feel so now? I think the hope is that we can answer yes to that question. Yes, I feel love in my heart. I feel my conversion growing. I feel to sing the song of redeeming love. 
However, you and I have both experienced, and we know a lot of people that have experienced what it feels like to not be able to answer yes to that question, to not feel the spirit the way that you want or in the moment that you want or for the time that you want. Sometimes that happens uh, for single moments. Sometimes it happens in weeks or months or years. And it becomes a really difficult trial of faith to have to continue in faith without sometimes the sustaining feeling that comes with feeling the spirit or, or feeling a passion or a desire. And as we looked at these stories at the end of the Gospels, these were the, the stories that kind of jumped out at us this time, was these, these real disciples who knew the Savior and were with him and yet struggled. I mean, of course, one of the most pivotal ones that we think of, especially in those last few hours of the Savior's life, was Peter's denial yeah. of, of his friend and his, and his teacher and leader. Um, I mean, I think of the women at the tomb as they were following him in his last few hours and then just weeping at the loss yeah. of, now what do we do? There's Thomas, right, that... Uh says to the gathered apostles, even after they have heard the report that Jesus has resurrected, Thomas that says, until I see him, until I touch his hands, I won't believe. Um, there's the two apostles that we'll read about in a bit, but uh, one of them being Cleopas, who uh, mourns and is walking and is sad about everything that's happened. And of course, there's Jesus on the cross asking in prayer, like, why have I been forsaken by my father? Where are you? Yeah. So the question then that we came up with is, what do I do when I don't feel anything? And that's a hard question to answer because it's such a personal one. Um, we really wrestled with how to approach this because we can't provide an answer for anyone that might be feeling that way. But we were drawn to the accounts of these individuals as they sought, I don't know if sought an answer, but sought to act in faith, even though they may have had doubts or worries or fears. And so what we want to study is what did Peter, what did these women at the tomb, what did Cleopas, and maybe even what did the Savior himself do in moments when they didn't feel the way that they expected or wanted to feel, when they felt distanced from God? What did they do and what can we maybe learn from those experiences? Well, the first thing that I noticed in my study was, as we mentioned this question, um, studying this, these chapters, the end of Christ's life with this question in mind of wondering, um, what to do when we don't, when we don't feel anything. And so I was really taken by the prayers of Jesus in his last hours. And in first in Luke 22, when he's in the garden, um, he prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Um, and that one first stuck out to me because I thought, stuck out to me because I thought, here it is right there. He's struggling. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to go through with this, but he's going to try it anyway. Um, and so if that's not an example or something that should comfort us when we're feeling those moments of abandonment or of wishing the situation wasn't the way it is or feeling alone. And then again in Matthew 27, um, this is when he's on the cross 
we've all known and heard this, but my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Or why have you forsaken me? Um, that question of where did you go? Is this really the path that I need to take? And so I think for me, with this question in mind, what do I do when I don't feel anything, is that that should give us maybe a lot of hope and comfort to know that as he was suffering in the garden and on the cross, this was an emotion and an experience that Jesus felt too. Yeah. Well, I think there's there's the word that we attached to this was to acknowledge those feelings. And I think from the Savior, we can draw both some comfort in knowing that even Jesus, the Son of God, felt moments when God was distant from him or when he felt disconnected or his desire uh, to fulfill God's will um, tested. But we can also learn an instruction from that in that he acknowledges those feelings and doesn't pretend otherwise. Uh, to call out on the cross when you're surrounded by your disciples and the very soldiers that are um, crucifying you and the Jews that are heckling you, to call out there and say, God, why have you forsaken me? That's a really um, brave admission of what you're what you're feeling, you know? I think so too. I I think that was really the next part of it that hit me is here he is calling this out, that it's okay for us to feel those things. And I think for us, a lot of times, I know from my own experience, um, when I've had those thoughts and feelings, a lot of it comes from the shame or the guilt of like, I'm not supposed to feel this way. I'm supposed to have this whatever gold medal status of faith that we sometimes pretend that we need to have, um, it can make the emotions even more so. It's that it's a primary emotion we have when we're saying, I don't know if I have faith or I don't even know if God's there. Um, but then when that really becomes compounded is when we start to have feelings of, of shame or doubt or shame or guilt for having those feelings. And then the cycle just continues and makes it maybe a bigger deal than it really needs to be. And here we have Jesus teaching us it's okay. Acknowledging those feelings mm -hmm. can actually be the pow more powerful way to overcome them. Yeah. Um, I know for me, I had a similar, I should have read these scriptures in that frame before, um, before this study we've had. But I know for me, one of the really insightful lessons that helped me feel better when I was in a moment of um, darkness and feeling lost or not knowing who God was, um, was reading about Mother Teresa and that she experienced these moments of darkness and what I, when I first heard the phrase, this divine hiddenness, because she tells the story that for years she didn't know that God was there. She really didn't had a lot of doubts and wasn't sure if she was doing anything good. And to hear someone like that talk about her faith in that open and vulnerable of a way was really um, helpful for me to understand that it was actually okay to have feelings like that. Well, and in fact, it sounds like it's, it's Christ-like, right? That if we expect to follow the Savior and to emulate him, there's probably going to be moments then where we will feel like he felt um, we're not being crucified or offering atonements, uh, but he's a perfect example that obedience to God does not necessitate an, an ever-present 
feeling of closeness to God. Sometimes we will feel very human emotions. And as you said, to acknowledge those emotions and not to overcomplicate them with secondary descriptions of guilt or shame that make that primary emotion um, become something really problematic. So I really like that. So much power is, um, as you're going to find out, we have a, I always forget the name of these, the A's. So we did come up with some, <laughs> I don't know when we're, when we're supposed to share that, that we have an alliteration for this week's episode. We always episode, have but an alliteration when I'm the one organizing I know, the you outline. Can't, you, can't, you can't get away from it. But that idea of acknowledging how you're feeling is just can be so powerful. A phrase that came to my mind uh, in conjunction with acknowledging feelings is adjusting expectations. Uh, I have always loved the story of the two disciples on the way to Emmaus in Luke 24. But as I read it this time with this question, something caught my eye that I had never really noticed before. It says in verse 15 uh, that Jesus drew near to these two disciples. They're walking to Emmaus after his resurrection. They've heard some of the stories, but they haven't seen him or witnessed him resurrected. And so as Jesus draws near to them in verse 16, it says, their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And I thought about how in every previous interaction these disciples have had with Jesus, one of them is Cleopas, and we don't know who the other one is. Some have guessed that maybe it's his wife. Uh, it could be Luke, the gospel writer here. It could be someone else. But whoever they are, every previous interaction they've had with Jesus has been a visual one. They have seen him. They have heard him. And so their witness of Christ being with them has been a visual one. Here, that visual witness in some divine way is barred or blocked. They don't recognize him. And it's interesting to notice what it is that Jesus calls out as the missing piece to their recognition. In verse 25, he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then, after he stays with them and they eat together, in verse 31, their eyes were opened, they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. But it wasn't their eyes, their, their visual witness that that proved to them who he was. They say in verse 32, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? What's interesting to me is the difference between this experience and every previous one they probably had with him. They had to use a different sense in order to recognize the Savior. Not a visual witness this time, but an, an emotional or a spiritual witness which I'm sure they have had previously, but they haven't had to ever rely solely upon what they felt. They've always had that visual witness. And now, in some kind of instructive moment, the Savior has let them know that going forward, if they want to recognize him, it's going to be much more a spiritual or an emotional recognition than it is a visual recognition. And so these disciples, I imagine walking away from this experience, have their expectations of their interactions with the Savior changed. 
And I think that's probably not too different from what we go through as we grow and mature in the gospel. Um, when we're younger, uh, maybe we have more emotional moments, more spiritual moments, uh, the burning in the bosom, the pounding of the heart, the, the very kind of visceral emotional witnesses of the Savior's presence or his hand or his touch in our life. And as we grow, either different senses become uh, more useful or more attuned or our experience changes. But in some way, I've been wondering how we need or if there's a need for us to adjust our expectations of our own interactions with the Savior and with the Spirit as we, as we grow and mature. Oh, that's really good. I've, I've thought about that a lot too. And just the way that we develop and grow as humans in other relationships that we have in our life, it, it's interesting sometimes that we hold that bar so high that it's mm. going to feel the same and be the same. When in, we aren't the same. When we aren't the same. And if we think about other relationships that we have in our lives are constantly changing and morphing and growing, um, and maybe without the hopelessness that it can sometimes feel, it's like, oh no, I, I don't get this anymore. I don't know. I guess it's taken me some time, but I've, I've found it to be kind of exciting to think of like, what are new ways that I can come to understand who he is or learn him again? Yeah. You know, another account that comes to mind then is uh, the end of John, where Mary Magdalene sees the Savior. She's the first one to witness of his resurrection. And there's this sometimes problematic phrase in verse 17 in John 20, where Jesus says to her, touch me not. The Greek there actually means to cling not or fasten not, which means she probably uh, ran to him, I'm sure, and was able to see him and touch him and, and witness of him the same way that everybody else gets to. Uh, and his comment to her isn't, don't touch me, but don't cling to me or let me go because I haven't yet ascended to my father and I need to go visit others. Um, but what's interesting is John deliberately draws on this because he tells Mary not to touch him. And then the very next story is him appearing to his apostles and Thomas, who doubts until he touches, gets to, in verse 27, reach hither his finger and thrust his hand into Jesus' side and then be able to physically witness of the Savior. The Savior's comment, though, is interesting in verse 29. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So the Savior then codifies essentially the experience that these two disciples on the way to Emmaus have had, and Mary and Thomas, in explaining that belief in him is going to rely on different senses than it has previously and that those disciples are to expect different interactions with him than they have had previously. And I think the same goes for us um, as we grow and mature. So it's an interesting question to ask, uh, what senses, in what ways am I used to experiencing the Spirit or feeling close to God? And what other ways might there be available to me to feel close to him or to experience him if those ways that I'm used to aren't aren't bearing the fruits that they used to. I really love that question. It kind of gets me excited to think what in what ways am I going to 
fine, that are new ways that I feel God or see God, or maybe I'll, I'll hit a dead end in one way and get the chance to grow and experience. And I think because I felt some of those dark moments myself, um, and I've known that there's other ways, maybe that's why it makes yeah. me feel excited. I, I have to, as we move on to the next point, um, I'm going to kind of piggyback these this scripture because it's one I was going to use for my next point. But I want to kind of talk about this one too, which has always been one of my favorites in John 14. It's when um, Jesus is teaching, I don't know if it's the first time, but one of the times where he teaches about the Spirit. And this is in verse 25 of chapter 14, John 14. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. I've always loved that um, that scripture in the idea of like, oh man, the Spirit's going to teach us just in the same way that Jesus taught here. But you have to think how kind of maybe confused and shocked the disciples would have been. Like, what do you mean? Like, how is that going to work? We've had you here teaching us. How much nicer and easier did that feel than the idea of like, wait, we're going to have to learn a new way of you teaching Mm -hmm. us. What does this even mean? I don't know, putting myself in their shoes with that comment. For me, that scripture brings me so much peace, but probably the first time they heard that was maybe a little disarming for them. Like, uh, wait, what does this mean? So I think that that's maybe obviously an adjustment that they had to make. And they looked back on the writings of John who wrote that in this text and um, thought, wait, he, he was teaching us about this then. So maybe we need to adjust our expectations about how we're going to learn and grow from him. Um, so I guess for that reason, the scripture applies to the next, um, what would you call it? The next point? The yeah. next how this applies to the next point, which is to abide. Um, And so that comes from that remembering and that he's with us, maybe even when we don't, when we don't feel it, he's sending the spirit and there's this interesting or do you want to call it tricky relationship or just like any relationship we have in our life, like you have to learn and grow in it and to understand it. But, he does give us something that will help us. Yeah. Well, the word abide comes from that next chapter in John 15, where he uses the the image of a vine and explains that he is the true vine. And if they are connected to him, or the word that he uses is abide. This is John 15, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Now that, to me, I think is a really basic truth on the surface, that without the Savior we can do nothing. We need to stay close to him. It becomes, I think, an even more powerful one when we're talking about what it means to abide in him when we don't feel the way that we usually have felt. Um, That's a lot of extra faith and a lot of extra work. And and I know it from moments that I've had and, and you've had 
Um, I also know it from from just people that I've talked to that have had to abide in the Savior, even though they don't feel the way that they um, normally do or, or have wanted to. And um, that doesn't make it easy, even though it's the right thing. It doesn't make it easy. Um, but I think it's, I don't know, maybe the only answer that's fully under our control. Well, I love that. I love that word abide and taught like that. But I'm, I'm just thinking of this question of what do I do when I don't feel anything? And of course, we're going to think that abide means to, you got to keep praying. You got to keep reading your scriptures. But what, what does that mean? Like, how would you define abide in this way? That's a really good question. I, I, I don't know how I would define it, but I think in John 15, the Savior gives some explanation of that a little bit later on when he says, he starts talking about love, maybe as a manifestation of your abiding in him. And this is where we get the famous, um, some of the famous verses from, greater love hath no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. But right before that, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Um, as I listen to that, I think whether spoken or unspoken to the apostles, part of the message here has to be, I am going away. And even though I will be resurrected, your interaction with me is going to be different than it has been over the last three plus years. It's not going to be this daily physical interaction. And in moments when you may feel separated from me or apart from me, I need you to continue to obey my commandments, the most important of which being I need you to love others. That's what I came to teach you to do. And I need you to keep doing that, even if I'm not with you. And even if you don't feel the way that you have felt, I think abiding in the Savior means continuing to follow him, even when he may not be as clearly in front of you as he once seemed to be. I like that definition. The other one that came to my mind in Abide was um, as I watched or read about the women that were at the cross with Jesus, that were waiting at the cross, that were seated facing the tomb, all in Matthew 27. I'm just looking at some of these phrases that um, made me write down in my notes was that the women waited and waited and waited. They were waiting for him. They were the first there when he arrived. They were the ones that were waiting when the angels appeared. Um, and sometimes it takes that. And I'm not saying that we're going to see angels as we wait and wait. And we're not going to necessarily see the resurrected Savior. But I was really inspired by that. That form of abiding was they were waiting. And if we were to talk to them, maybe they would say that they weren't being patient or they weren't being faithful enough. But to me, I see women, I see disciples that were willing to wait in a really hard time to find out what their Savior had next for them. That's really good. You know, I these three points, I think, resonated with us. Acknowledge, adjust, abide. But there's going to be so many more that, that come to people as they study this on their own. Um, especially if the question is one that you have or that you have for someone that's close to you. Um, I think if we're not careful, 
we can create very one-dimensional heroes out of the people we read in Scripture. Um, and it's experiences like this, reading about Peter's denial of Christ or uh, about Mar Mary's weeping at the tomb or Thomas's inability to believe without physical touch that reminds us that uh, these people and even the Savior himself in this account um, were mortal and thus very prone to have mortal experiences that comes with fear and doubt. Um, and so hopefully at least part of this experience for our listeners is that um, they can feel some camaraderie with the people that that we read about here in scriptures. And maybe there's some additional um, light and truth. I'm sure there will be much more that comes to them than just what we've said in this episode. Well, if anything, I think placing yourselves in the shoes of some of these disciples that you identify with and realizing that they are that a multifaceted person that, and maybe probably even in today's episode, it was me putting maybe a little too much personality behind um, people that I am just assuming things about them. But I think it can be really enriching for our study as we look at these experiences that, that they had from a very human lens of knowing that there was this very human experience that they were having with someone who was more than that. Um. You know, I was reading about Alma at the beginning. Um, we don't get a whole lot of Alma II's backstory. He kind of shows up on the scene as Alma, the sons of Mosiah, this bad Book of Mormon biker gang that's running around causing all these problems, right? And has this incredible experience. But uh, you can kind of trace their story just a little bit. You remember King Benjamin's uh, incredible sermon that he gives. And then, this is Mosiah 26, came to pass that there were many of the rising generation that could not understand the words of King Benjamin, being little children at the time he spake unto the people, and did not believe the tradition of their fathers. Therefore, in verse 3, they couldn't understand the word of God, and their hearts were hardened. Now, I'm not saying that if someone has a difficult time feeling the Spirit, that it means their heart is hard. But for Alma, I wonder if somewhere in his past experience, uh, he struggled feeling what he hears his dad talk about, what he hears people talk about King Benjamin saying, maybe what he sees other people around him experiencing. He just struggles to feel that spirit. And so when he asks the question in Alma chapter 5, can you feel so now? I wonder how much of that comes from his own personal wrestle over years of maybe not feeling the way that he wanted to feel. I don't know, but at the very least, I do know at the end of that sermon in Alma chapter 5, he draws upon the image of the Savior as a shepherd. And he mentions multiple times uh, how much the Savior continues to call after the sheep, those that are close to him and those that feel estranged from him. Verse 60 is just one great example. He says, and now I say unto you that the good shepherd doth call after you. And if you will hearken unto his voice, he will bring you into his fold, and ye are his sheep. And he commandeth you that you suffer no raven, ravenous wolves to enter among you, that you may be not destroyed. 
And now I, Alma, do command you in the language of him who hath commanded me that you observe to do the words which I have spoken unto you. This experience for us was one really rich in some new insights and maybe some new principles to help us grow in faith, especially in times when it's not as easy. And hopefully this becomes something that's beneficial to those that are listening. To you who are listening, thank you so much for being with us this episode, um, and we will see you next month.